Each episode of All Things Ethics is worth 0.1 ASHA CEUs when you complete the accompanying pod course on speechtherapypd.com. Listeners of All Things Ethics can now receive $20 off a pod course membership to speechtherapypd.com, giving unlimited access to all existing and future pod courses for just $59 a year. Use the code ETHICS at checkout and get access to more than 175 existing pod courses on demand with additional episodes released weekly. One more time, use code ETHICS at checkout and take $20 off of a pod course subscription to speechtherapypd.com. I'm Dr. Elise Davis McFarland, originator and host of the All Things Ethics podcast series. So I want to welcome you to All Things Ethics, where we will be discussing ethics in our profession of speech language pathology. We all agree that it's important to practice ethically. In fact, ethical practice is the cornerstone of our profession. But my experience has been that we seldom talk about ethics until there is a problem or a perceived problem, and then it may be too late. On all things ethics, we talk about ethics in the various aspects of our profession, school practice, the conduct of research, interprofessional practice and relationships, ethics and private practice, healthcare and medical practice, as well as clinical supervision, telepractice, and other aspects of our profession. We'll be providing useful information about ethics and ethical practice, so you'll have the best possible information about how to practice ethically and how to avoid ethical dilemmas that may jeopardize your clinical practice, your research, or your relationships with your colleagues. Our guests are seasoned professionals who have experience and expertise in the areas we will be discussing. They'll be able to provide information and share personal experiences that you can use to enhance your practice and increase your knowledge about the ethical aspects of our profession. All Things Ethics provides information that will allow you to interpret ASHA's Code of Ethics, so questions you may have can be answered and your understanding of the code will allow you to practice undefensively and in keeping with our profession's ethical standards. So welcome to All Things Ethics. Welcome to All Things Ethics. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Davis McFarland, and today we're discussing ethics in audiology practice. Quoting from ASHA's scope of practice for audiologists, their work includes hearing and balance assessment, non-medical treatment, and habilitation and rehabilitation. Audiologists provide patient-centered care in the prevention, identification, diagnosis, and evidence-based intervention and treatment of hearing, balance, and other related disorders for people of all ages. Some of us are most familiar with the work audiologists do in diagnosing and assessing hearing loss and fitting hearing aids and other devices for the improvement of hearing. But audiologists are not limited to hearing testing and hearing aids. Their practices can be more comprehensive and can involve diagnosis and management of balance and equilibrium issues. 
Audiologists provide services in schools where they assess hearing and consult with educators on issues related to hearing loss and learning. They can also consult and work with colleagues in professions other than audiology as they work on interprofessional projects. Audiologists can also use electronic information and telecommunications technologies to support long distance assessment and evaluation of hearing via a telepractice platform. Given the diverse areas in which audiologists practice, there can certainly be opportunities for ethical issues to arise. What are the requirements for a successful audiology practice? Is ASHA's Code of Ethics as comprehensive in its guidance for audiology practice and research as for speech-language pathology clinical practice and research? What, if any, are the challenges for ethical audiology practice? Our guest today is going to answer all of those questions for us. Dr. Arlene Early Carney is Professor Emeritus from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, where she taught classes, mentored undergraduate and graduate students, and engaged in research in the areas of cochlear implants, rehabilitative and pediatric audiology. She served as chair of her department, associate dean for undergraduate education, and Vice Provost for Faculty and Academic Affairs. Dr. Carney is currently serving as the Vice President for Standards and Ethics in Audiology for the American Speech Language and Hearing Association. Previously, she was a member and chair of ASHA's Board of Ethics. She's a fellow of ASHA and the Acoustical Society of America and received the honors of ASHA in 2015. Dr. Arlene Carney has a long and distinguished career in audiology practice, research, teaching, and administration. Dr. Carney, welcome to All Things Ethics. Thanks for being here with me today to discuss ethics and audiology practice. I'm a speech language pathologist and not as familiar with audiology practice and research as I am with my own profession. So I'm looking forward to learning from you today, given your extensive background in the field and profession of audiology. So let's get started. Let's begin. Could you talk a little bit about ASHA's code of ethics and how it should influence clinical practice for audiologists? Yes, I'll be happy to do that. But first, thank you so much for having me here. It's always a pleasure to talk about the topic of ethics and it's particularly interesting today to talk about audiology practice. The Code of Ethics is one of the key documents of ASHA. The first formal Code of Ethics was written in 1952, although the association always had a set of guiding ethical principles since its inception in 1925. All professions have codes of ethics, medicine, nursing, occupational therapy, and physical therapy, for example, in the healthcare arena, and also professions such as law, business, engineering, and many others. Codes of ethics reflect the values of each profession. ASH's Code of Ethics is designed for its members, primarily audiologists, speech-language pathologists, and researchers in communication sciences and disorders. 
I really like that design because it recognizes how two professions interrelate with each other and with researchers across the field. The 2016 revision of the Code of Ethics introduced the values for ethical practice with other professions. And of course, that's very important now that interprofessional practice and interprofessional education are definitely parts of our scopes of practice. In its preamble, the Code of Ethics is described as, quote, a framework and focused guide for professionals in support of day-to-day decision-making related to professional conduct, unquote. It's a combination of very practical, concrete statements of what we should do today, as well as aspirational statements about the values of our professions. I think that's very important in today's world where ethics has become a hot topic globally in so many fields. Over the years, many people have said to me that we don't really need a code of ethics, that it's all just about common sense. I have to tell you that description makes me shudder a little bit. The problem is, I'm definitely not sure we all share the same definition of common sense. Uh, plus, the world changes at a rapid pace. We have to cope with things today that didn't exist before, such as social media and telepractice. And now we have to acknowledge and act on the fact that sometimes our peers might be impaired practitioners. Common sense as a principle is very hard to apply in these situations. One of the most important aspects of the Code of Ethics is the fact that it reflects a consensus about values. It's a living document that undergoes regular review and change. In fact, about every five years, uh, the Board of Ethics begins a revision of the code to see what changes might be necessary. So the Board of Ethics is now just starting to make uh, a review of the 2016 Code of Ethics to see where there might be holes that need to be filled. So let me talk about the code in general a little bit for you. The code has four principles. These are the big picture items. And under these principles, there are specific rules. The first principle focuses on our clients, patients, students, and on participants in research. Their welfare is paramount, period. That is the most important principle of the Code of Ethics. It's an outstanding statement, but what about the particulars? What does this mean in everyday practice? There are 20 rules that can guide us in practice under principle one alone. The first rule talks about providing services competently. Very straightforward. In audiology, that means keeping up with rapid changes in technology for hearing aids, cochlear implants, and new diagnostic procedures for hearing imbalance. Uh, and as we go to uh, sessions uh, of continuing education, we see that changes in audiology uh, are occurring every day. 
Audiology practice today is far more complex than five years ago, let alone 10 or 20 years ago. But we have to ask ourselves if our own practice skills are up to the task. And if they are not, we have to find a remedy. Otherwise, we are not really abiding by that rule under principle one. The other item I want to point out among the many rules under principle one has to do with making appropriate referrals for clients and patients as needed. I think audiologists have always been quick to refer for medical intervention. And that may be how audiologists really interpret that rule on a day-to-day -day basis. But audiologists also have to make referrals to our speech-language pathology colleagues, especially for children who come to us for hearing evaluations from a pediatrician, for example, who wants to rule out hearing loss because a child is slow to talk. When the hearing evaluation is over and the auditory system appears to be functioning normally, it's easy to think that the audiologist's job is finished. We write a report and we don't have any additional audiologic or medical follow-up that we think is needed. But there is still the fact that we have a child who is uh, slow to develop speech and language. And even though speech and language diagnosis and treatment is not under our scope of practice, we have an obligation to probe to see if the child's speech and language are delayed and then talk to the family about speech language pathology services. I think this is a fairly usual practice among pediatric audiologists who really work with young children every day, but not necessarily for those who see children less frequently. This leads us right into principle two, which is about maintaining the highest level of competence and performance. The first of eight rules focuses on providing these services within our scope of practice, as you discussed initially. But we should only provide services for which we are educated and trained. Now, for example, I would not be competent in any way to provide vestibular services. That's simply not something that I have ever done, nor do I have any expertise or training in that area, given when I received my own uh, clinical certification, and also that I have focused my uh, clinical practice over the years in pediatric diagnostics and in cochlear implants for both children and adults. We know as audiologists that we must continue uh, our education through continuing ed to maintain certification from ASHA and for renewing our state licenses to practice. But the Code of Ethics reminds us that this continuing education is about ethical practice as well and not just to fulfill a requirement. Principle three is about our responsibility to the public, and it has seven rules under it. The first rule reminds us that we should not misrepresent our credentials, competence, training, or experience. 
Interestingly, one of the most frequent problems that practitioners have is that they forget to renew their certification or to pay their licensure fees. And then they continue to practice without using these credentials. So they continue to sign their reports, CCCA, and give their, uh, their license number, but they have not yet paid their dues or their license fees, in some cases up to several months. This is unethical practice, and it can lead to legal problems too if the audiologist continues to bill for services as a licensed practitioner. That billing is fraudulent, even if the audiologist didn't intend it that way. And there certainly have been cases that came before the Board of Ethics where audiologists, and of course, speech-language pathologists as well, uh, continued to practice without remembering to pay their licensure fees. And um, licensing boards uh, do not accept, I forgot to pay my fees as a good excuse. And meanwhile, um, the association, the clinic, the hospital that you work for, your practice, has been billing under false pretenses. Uh, so that's a big problem. The other areas that can be problematic come under advertising with a credential that's not quite accurate. So you may not have an AUD, you may have a doctoral degree of a different type, but the way you advertise your audiology credential, which may be a master's degree, suggests that you have an AUD or a PhD. Now, finally, principle four has to do with maintaining the dignity and autonomy of the professions. There are 20 rules under this principle. Many of them have to do with fraud and misrepresentation in billing, advertising, not disclosing information, or using others' ideas without credit. Some of these rules are not surprising to audiologists, but others that I'll discuss later are perhaps less obvious. Well, that was a very long answer about the specifics of the Code of Ethics, but it really captures the comprehensiveness of the Code. Well, that's great. I, I think that our listeners will really appreciate your going into the depth that you did. But let me ask you about uh, one of the things that you said, uh, and that is that audiologists have an obligation to probe to see if a child's speech and language are delayed and to talk to the family about speech language pathology services. How much, um, how much information do audiologists need to have in order to be able to make this determination and, and have this type of discussion with parents? I think that they need to have more information than many of them have at their fingertips. Um, for most of my career, I have taught classes uh, to audiology graduate students in pediatric diagnostics and rehabilitation. And so for you know, 30 years of teaching, I would always have an assignment, which I continued until I just retired, uh, where I would have them review the basics of language development, what is typical development, 
in speech and language from birth through age uh, about 10 and have them make up charts as a project in class so they would have that with them when they saw patients. And I must say some of the students grumbled a little bit about that initially, but as they practiced in even their practicum, they began to realize that they wouldn't remember a lot of these things from their basic language development class that they may have had as a sophomore or junior undergraduate. So I think they need to know the speech language developmental milestones and what is just outside normal. And then also, I believe they need to listen to parents. And if the parents are very concerned about the child's communication, I think they also need to observe the child as they're testing them to look at aspects of social communication. Now, beyond that, that's really outside the scope. But if a child is, let's say, as I tell students, three to four years old, and you are unable to understand anything that they are saying, or the parents report difficulties in communicating with them at all, then I think you really are obligated to refer, to have the names of a number of speech language pathologists and the uh, early childhood people in the local school systems so that you can refer that family immediately. Because I think if they came to a pediatrician fearing uh, what, what kind of delay the child had, and it, you've been able to rule out hearing loss, you need to provide them with somewhere else to go. I think that's part of our obligation as audiologists. And okay. speech language pathologists seem to do a, a good job referring children for hearing screening. So I think we need to reciprocate. Okay. Um, let's move on now because I have another question. Um, ASHA is developing a process for certifying speech language pathology assistants. And now the use of audiology assistance is becoming more frequent in clinical practice. So I'm really interested to know what possible ethical dilemmas might arise uh, with the practice or the use of audiology assistance. Well, audiologists have been using assistance for a while in many practice settings, but typically not in the same way that speech language pathologists have been using SLP assistance uh, in the schools and in other practice settings. Now, for audiology assistants, some of them uh, may do primarily clinical work and may not have any baccalaureate degree. Other audiology assistants uh, go well beyond uh, clerical work, and some of them are actually enrolled in Doctor of Audiology programs so they have a bachelor's degree, or others may be hired as full-time assistants uh, and have uh, either, uh, and typically these days, have an undergraduate degree in <clears throat> communication sciences and disorders. So we're going to see some really different backgrounds and preparation and even use among audiology assistants. I think it's probably a little more uh, varied than for speech language pathology. 
So it would be hard to dispute asking an assistant to do an, an electroacoustic evaluation of a hearing aid or to send hearing aids back to a manufacturer. Uh, it's pretty easy for audiologists to teach someone to do that according to a very strict protocol. And it's also quite tempting to ask assistants to complete tasks that belong to audiologists only previously, like completing a pure tone audiogram or a tympanogram uh, more as a screening procedure. And that may be entirely appropriate depending upon the background of the assistant, or it may be inappropriate. Uh, so uh, audiologists should practice at the top of their license, as we're saying these days, using their advanced expertise, and audiology assistants allow that to happen more easily. So where's the code of ethics come in? Well, principle one, the one that patient welfare is paramount, and rule D under that principle, says that individuals should not misrepresent the credentials of assistants, students, or support personnel. So it's not asking the AUD student to complete an audiogram. That would be reasonable, especially because they would have the training for that, depending upon where they are in their program. It's how you introduce them. Uh, do you introduce them as an audiologist? Or do you say that this is an audiology student? Or this is my audiology assistant? So that's very important. That's the uh, part about not misrepresenting credentials, even of support personnel. The rules E, F, and G under that same principle one go on to talk about appropriately supervising personnel and making sure they're prepared to do the task at hand. So for someone as an assistant who primarily does clerical work, asking them to do an audiogram with very little training and supervision would uh, likely be questionable. Whereas if you had someone who had sufficient training and they were not making a diagnosis, they were not writing a report, they were providing uh, information for you. Because the code of ethic reminds us that the final authority and responsibility always lies with the certified individual. Now, ASHA has begun a program for certifying audiology assistants. Uh, this has been ongoing for several years, uh, and uh, th that is uh, handled by the Council for Clinical Certification. So uh, subject matter experts came in to try to determine what were the uh, types of information, knowledge, and skills that assistants should have. So there is uh, a national exam which is being developed for assistants and a set of criteria for certification. The first exam uh, for speech-language pathology assistance uh, is going to be held later in 2020 and likely the audiology assistant exam at that same time or close after. Now, at the present time, audiology assistants are regulated very differently across states as are speech-language pathology assistants. But it's kind of a different situation 
because there actually are a number of states uh, like California and Florida that do have very specific regulations or licenses for SLP assistance. Uh, the audiology area is definitely more varied. So if you have any questions about whether there is a credential from your state for an audiology assistant, it's always best to check the ASHA webpage and go to the big category, Practice Management. Click on Practice Management. You'll see a number of areas, one being the Practice Portal, and another that you can click on, a major area about state licensure. And under that, you can go to individual states. And I would say you need to click to see how support personnel are regulated. I just looked again today, and I looked at about 10 states. And there was tremendous variability about uh, whether they're regulated in the schools at all, or whether they are regulated in practice. So regardless of the availability of regulation and licensure and ASHA's new certification program, audiologists have to make sure that they're using their assistance in an ethical manner. And uh, asking people to get assistance certification uh, is a good kind of guarantee or advantage in hiring because you have a better idea of what the assistant might know. But it's always critical to follow whatever is required in your state or area of practice. For um, your, your this information about audiology assistance uh, brings me to a question for you. And that is, uh, speech language pathology assistance, we, we have a list of uh, things that they are allowed to do in terms of um, therapy, interaction with clients, report um, development, on and on. Is there such, um, such a list, or as it were, or uh, that type of information for audiology assistants that are very, um, very specific about uh, what their scope is? Well, uh, the uh, audiology assistance certification program will have all of that information for um, ASHA members and others in the public, of course, it'll be public information. And so there is a list um, and the American Academy of Audiology also has a practice statement um, about audiology assistance. It's not a comprehensive list, uh, but uh, for example, the one for um, ASHA certification of assistance specifically lists, these are the clerical duties that people should be able to do. These are sort of what we call the instrumentation duties. So they should be able to check and make sure that the headphones and transducers are working, plugged in. They can do electroacoustic evaluations of hearing aids. They wouldn't be fit, they would not be allowed to fit hearing aids or program hearing aids, but they'd be allowed to troubleshoot, et cetera. So yes. Those kinds of uh, lists do exist. Okay, thank you. 
Let's go on. Um, switching gears a little bit here. Audiologists work with many manufacturers of devices like hearing aids and cochlear implants, as well as equipment for diagnosis and treatment of hearing and balance disorders. Does the code of ethics address conflicts of interest that might apply to this situation? Uh, yes, it does. The, the code of ethics addresses conflicts of interest specifically. Principle three focuses on our responsibility to the public. And rule B under that states that individuals shall avoid engaging in conflicts of interest whereby personal, financial, or other considerations have the potential to influence or compromise professional judgment and objectivity. Uh, this one can be tricky. We all go to professional meetings where manufacturers of all these devices have booths and offer little items for attendees like pens, notebooks, chargers, etc., that have their company logos. And so we may accept some of those kinds of things because they're very, very inexpensive. But a few years ago, uh, the items available were really quite a bit more lavish. Some hearing aid companies offered trips to those who dispensed a number of their devices, for example. They also held large parties at meetings with celebrities singing and things like that. Uh, this kind of practice was even more widespread in medicine, particularly dealing with pharmaceutical companies. However, the American Medical Association and educational institutions uh, like universities hospitals, et cetera, really crack down on these practices. So uh, you may be working in a situation where conflict of interest policies are even more rigid than uh, the values uh, that are shown in our principles and rules. So at the University of Minnesota, our conflict of interest policies are more specific and stringent than rule B. In the audiology clinics on campus at the University Hospital and in the Department of Speech-Language Hearing Sciences, practitioners and professors may not accept lunch invitations unless they pay for their own lunch. They may not have logos from any manufacturer in the clinics other than those on the equipment or the devices themselves. Um, if we collaborate with a company on research, we must manage our conflict of interest with a plan we file with the university and must, we must disclose our relationship at all times. Uh, disclosure statements are required these days at ASHA and almost all professional meetings when giving talks. But rule B can prevent a dilemma for the audiologist in private practice or a small clinic that may not have all these very specific rules about conflict of interest. Uh, there was a time when audiologists were not ethically able to dispense hearing aids because at the time in the 70s, the thinking was that this would lead to um, compromising patient care. But it became clear that um, audiologists can certainly dispense hearing aids ethically, uh, and they are not putting the welfare of the patient at risk. So um, 
Audiologists can also dispense hearing aids from only one or a limited number of manufacturers, the same with cochlear implants. But the practitioner has to be sure that the choices they made reflect the best of patient care and not just personal gain. So if you think a particular device is really the best one, a manufacturer uh, has a, a wide range of devices available for your patient and um, patient care is not sacrificed in any way, then it's not a problem. So it's not as though we require everyone to work with multiple manufacturers. Uh, it is tricky because, of course, an audiologist should be able to maximize his or her income. So it's good to be a successful practitioner, but not at the expense of the patient. And I think we have lots of great examples of audiology practitioners who balance that very well. They uh, make a good living, they have a good practice, but they are outstanding caretakers of their patients. I think that the classic example of poor judgment would be selling the most expensive hearing aids possible to a patient who may not be a very good hearing aid candidate at all to meet some dispensing goal. That is a questionable kind of practice. But once again, the code of ethics wasn't designed to punish anyone, to, but to provide guidelines about daily practice. Now, just today, and the online ASHA leader blog, there was a discussion of conflict of interest. There is an ethical practice part of the ASHA leader blog, which comes out uh, at least once a month, uh, maybe more often. And these are really interesting to read. Um, and it listed factors to consider in deciding if a conflict of interest exists in a particular situation. So in the blog, there's typically a case that is proposed, and then uh, a short reference back to the code of ethics. So it's, I think these are really well done. Now, Dr. Davis McFarland, you were a member of the Board of Ethics at a different time than I was, but you were probably quite taken aback by the fact that some individuals really did violate conflict of interest rules. I know that I was. Now, most practitioners, of course, do not but the code of ethics exists to guide us when there may be a problem. You are certainly right. I, um, I certainly was uh, surprised, taken aback by some of the uh, things that came before the board when I, uh, when I was on the board. And you know, it's really just so important that, um, that practitioners keep the code uh, before them become very familiar with it and even think about uh, what they do in their practice and whether or not there is uh, a possibility of conflict of interest because uh, things can happen uh, without our thinking about them or, or carefully or considering them carefully enough. And so um, people can really get uh, themselves and their practices in uh, a lot of trouble. Uh, by not uh, being familiar with the code of ethics and most of all, not following the code of ethics. You're right. Okay, uh, another question for you. Audiologists use and manage a great deal of instrumentation in practice for diagnostic hearing and balance assessment. 
and for hearing aid fitting. Does the Code of Ethics address an audiologist's responsibility for managing instrumentation? Uh, the code does address this. And part of the reason I bring it up is that as time has gone on, audiologists themselves uh, rely more and more on outside companies to calibrate their equipment, as they should uh, to make sure that the equipment meets all the appropriate standards. But uh, this goes back to principle two, providing competent services. Uh, apart from sort of the annual big deal of having a company come in and check the calibration of our equipment, uh, we have to ensure, like it says in rule H of principle two, that our technology and instrumentation is calibrated and working appropriately and not just annually. And so it is really important to have perhaps a series of checklists that allow us to go through and make sure that everything is working appropriately. Uh, and so there really were good reasons for taking classes in this area. It's usually not um, audiology students' favorite classes. I have to say, I always really liked them being me. Uh, and I, I think noticing that something is off um, if you start getting funny audiograms uh, several in a row, uh, you really need to make sure uh, that there isn't something wrong with one of your transducers uh, because everyone shouldn't have a notch in hearing, a little hearing loss at 1000 Hertz. And this is part of the practicing at the top of your license. Um, an audiology assistant might not notice something like that. But if you are carefully reviewing audiograms that they might do or that you are doing and notice this consistency, that's part of making sure your equipment uh, is calibrated. So it's important, of course, for business reasons, but it's also important for ethical practice. And, you know, we have a lot more equipment than we used to. Uh, so there are transducers not just on audiometers, uh, but of course on tympanometers, uh, on otoacoustic emissions equipment, hearing aid test box. So having a kind of checklist, much like a pilot has, um, where you go through, this is a good thing for audiology assistants to do, regularly check things uh, to see that everything is working. So it's not a glamorous part of audiology practice, but I think uh, you can go fairly wrong in making diagnoses if you don't have equipment that works perfectly. Now, certainly speech-language pathologists in certain areas of practice have this same pressure, but probably not as much as audiologists do. You mentioned uh, various types of equipment that audiologists have and the fact that they are responsible for ensuring that their instrumentation is calibrated and, and is accurate. Um, can all of that be done by the audiologist uh, themselves or is sometimes there a need to bring in uh, technicians and other people who would, uh, who would do that? Absolutely. I think um, you need, as an audiologist, 
you need to do listening checks of certain things so that you can hear distortion. Um, so it's important that you listen to your equipment or have, again, an audiology assistant do these kinds of things and uh, also check for frayed cords and things like that that can show up because cords tend to get all twisted in certain areas, um, particularly, you know, in university clinics because of the multiple numbers of users. So uh, once you notice anything, like something sounds a little bit off or a transducer doesn't seem to connect quite the same way, then you need to call in a technician. And there are a number of really good companies whose job are to come out, troubleshoot uh, things in between. Now, for example, at the University of Minnesota, we had a contract with an outside company who came in and calibrated all of our equipment, including the portable audiometers for screening and the sound level meters once a year. But in between that, we had a sort of troubleshooting contract with them where they could come in. But they're not going to come in if you're not doing regular listening checks yourself to make sure things are focused are functioning correctly. Okay, thank you. Do audiologists have any demands from regulatory bodies like state licensure boards? And how is that addressed in, uh, in the code of ethics? Well, just like speech language pathologists, audiologists are definitely subject to many regulatory bodies. And so um, if you are an educational audiologist, you may also, depending upon the state, uh, be subject to some of the same regulations that um, teachers or speech-language pathologists might. But um, that's a very small number of audiologists. Most people are in uh, more standard clinical or hospital uh, kinds of situations. And so audiologists have to be licensed to practice in virtually every state. And the licensure may be a little bit different depending upon the state. So some states have separate licenses for audiologists and hearing aid dispensers. Others have a, um, like California, for example, has two kinds of audiology licenses. One of them is allows you to dispense hearing aids as well as do diagnostics. The other audiology license does not allow you to dispense devices. So you could have that second license if you only worked in a diagnostic setting and did not do any hearing aids. So if you move to the state of California, you have to be really careful uh, which license you obtain uh, depending upon where you practice. Now for most audiologists, they have both where they practice, they can dispense hearing aids as well as other uh, uh, diagnostic practices. Um, so uh, the other thing you have to check about licensure, and I'll use California, my new home state, as an example. If you move to California, you must, you cannot be licensed unless you have taken the praxis exam within the last five years. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. that, that is a big difference. Uh, that's not the case 
in my old home state of Minnesota, and it had one audiology practice, uh, one audiology license for both diagnostics and hearing aid dispensing. So when before you decide to move to another state, it's very important to look at the the regulations. Now, what allows you to be very portable are your uh, certification is your certification in audiology, because almost every state license law refers to um, the certification standards. For most states, if you are certified, um, you can very easily become licensed in another state. So of course, licensure and certification are very different entities. Certification is voluntary and licensure is obligatory in the state to practice. But principle four, rule S, requires individuals to follow all regulations and laws. So you, if you do not have, if you practice with the wrong license or with an expired license, you are also violating ASHA's code of ethics. Uh, so if an audiologist uh, practiced without a license for a while, was one of those people who forgot to pay their licensure fees, and they were sanctioned by that licensing board for unethical behavior, that licensing board frequently uh, may send the case to the Board of Ethics for adjudication. So they've already been sanctioned by the state board, and now their case goes to the Board of Ethics, and there could be a sanction against their membership and certification. Similarly, if an audiologist is sanctioned by the Board of Ethics, the Board of Ethics can send their decision and sanction to the licensing board. Uh, and principle four, rule T states that an individual must disclose sanction from a licensure board to the Board of Ethics. And that came about because there were really only a few states that regularly sent uh, cases that had been sanctioned to the Board of Ethics. So if you, were, were, if you worked in Ohio or Oklahoma, uh, those states, and Louisiana, those states would send cases from the State Licensure Board to the Board of Ethics. But now it requires that you self-disclose even if you received a light sanction. So uh, we're into a different era here. So before it was often uh, a more a closer to don't ask, don't tell. So if uh, you if your licensure board didn't send things on to the Board of Ethics, then the Board of Ethics may never know and you sort of skirted around violating the code. But now if you don't self-disclose, um, you have violated the code of ethics. And also, an, an audiologist can practice with just a license, as can a speech-language pathologist. But if they are ASHA members, they have to be certified members. Um, this is confusing for some individuals, but it's very specific in principle two, rule B. That is, we have some people who are members of ASHA, but not certified members. They are most often people who are researchers 
in communication sciences and disorders or linguists who are interested in the field and they are non-certified members. So there were some members who said, well, it's cheaper to be a non-certified member than a certified member. So I'll just become a member and I can practice in my home state with a license. So this is a cheap way to practice, but it specifically is a violation of the code of ethics. Because if you are an ASHA member doing practice, you must be certified. Uh, so um, I explain this one quite a bit to people, um, but uh, it, so there isn't a cheap way to circumvent uh, paying your certification fees if you want to be an ASHA member uh, who is uh, providing clinical practice services. You know, getting back to principle four, rule T, that says individuals must disclose sanctions from a licensing board uh, to the board of ethics. Uh, when I was on the uh, board of ethics, that was not the case. Principle four, rule T did not exist. Right. And we would get uh, cases from maybe three or four, there were three or four states that would report to the board of ethics uh, violations uh, that had occurred in their states. But uh, there was no requirement for people in the states uh, that did not report to self-report. And uh, very often when I'm, I'm talking, especially to students, about the code of ethics, this principle for rule T is one of the things that I emphasize. Uh, so that, uh, you know, with the, with the message to be, you know, doubly careful, because if you uh, are sanctioned in your state or by the state, you certainly do risk um, having to uh, report yourself to the board of ethics and then having uh, that, uh, that punishment or that sanction also. So that, you know, it's, uh, I'm sorry. that becomes really important. I think what's interesting is that the self-disclosure is very important through a lot of principle four, particularly because the Board of Ethics does not have investigative authority. Mm -hmm. So the Board of Ethics doesn't investigate cases, whereas state licensure boards do because you're violating a state regulation. And so uh, what ASHA is saying is that we have to self, the Board of Ethics is saying uh, that we have to self-monitor and that we are responsible for our ethical behavior. It's not enough for someone else to tell us to be ethical. And I think that's a very important part of the 2016 revision of the Code mm -hmm. of Ethics. And it's going to be interesting to see what uh, what, if any, new um, rules or principles are developed as the, uh, as the Board of Ethics looks at uh, the um, Code of Ethics in 2020 uh, to see what, uh, what comes out of that, uh, that process. Because I the did... 2016 revision did include uh, several new, uh, new principles, well, new rules anyhow. Exactly. And I think uh, one of the areas that certainly gets a lot of discussion is social media. But 
that's a tricky one to interpret. I mean, right now, uh, the issue uh, with social media that is most commonly uh, a violation would be uh, violating confidentiality. So revealing things about uh, patients, so you'd be violating principle one uh, with social media. So uh, the second is, you know, we've certainly had a lot of discussion about civility and ASHA has a code of civility, but it's not necessarily an ethical violation. So it gets to this interesting thing about what is a code of ethics, a statement of values, and that's a consensus. And so I think we haven't reached that yet in, uh, in the area of social media. And of course, social media develops so quickly, it's hard to even anticipate what kinds of things we'd be discussing in a couple of years. Isn't it? It really is. It really is. So it will be interesting to see what, uh, what comes out of this 2020 review. Okay, let's go on. Uh, each year, all ASHA members, including audiologists, must affirm that they will continue to abide by the code of ethics for the next year. Is there anything that professionals should think about before signing that affirmation? Uh, there are many things they need to think about, but I think uh, it's one of those uh, uh, pieces of information that you take for granted and just say, yes, yes, I will abide by the code of ethics. Um, now members have to think that it's more than just a promise for the future year. Uh, you also have to think about what has happened in the past year and even more more time sensitive what's happened in the past 30 days uh, the disclosures of past information are covered in three different rules under principle four and so typically we ask people to self-disclose information uh, that has happened within the past 30 days so particularly rule S, individuals are supposed to disclose any convictions or pleas of nolo contendere within 30 days. Uh, these are for felonies or misdemeanors involving bodily harm. And I think it was surprising again on the Board of Ethics to see that individuals um, really did have these things occur. So if you were convicted of a driving under the influence felony charge, um, I think people might have thought, well, that doesn't really directly affect my practice. So what, why would I ever disclose that? Uh, shortly before um, the 2016 change in this area came about, the Council for Clinical Certification had asked about disclosures for individuals who were applying for certification. And that was also true for people who were applying for recertification. And so there were a number of people who did not disclose that they had been convicted of felonies, even let's say as teenagers. There were cases where um, People had been uh, convicted of uh, 
shoplifting and charges that were you know, relatively serious, but did not disclose on their certification application, and then they were denied certification. So the 2016 Code of Ethics is now reminding us that every year we are making an affirmation that we have disclosed, not just that we will abide by the Code of Ethics the next year. Um, the other issue is that ASHA members are supposed to address other members whom they know have violated the Code of Ethics. And this is another tricky area. The ASHA member does not necessarily have to file a complaint right away, but they need to talk to the person or supervisor to resolve the situation. For example, take the case of you knowing that one of your colleagues uh, is using CCCA after their names, but they are not really certified. Um, their certification lapsed. And let's say it's on a website. So you can't just ignore that now, according to the 2016 Code of Ethics. You need to either talk to that person directly. Uh, so this would be the case, let's say, if you were the chair of an academic department. Um, uh, you don't necessarily immediately file uh, a complaint, but this has to be rectified that perhaps the person didn't know that that credential was still up on the website. Um, but that's, again, misrepresenting their credentials. So it depends on the violation. If you know about a billing fraud, for example, uh, you know that someone is illegally billing for services or billing services that an assistant does that and you're charging that the rate as the audiologist, um, you, are, you have a legal obligation to report, not just an ethical obligation, uh, or you may be considered an accomplice. So getting legal advice is also appropriate. So um, again, this goes back to ethics is not the same as the law, but very often it overlaps. It's definitely not the same as common sense. Um, so the other one that I think is particularly going to be difficult for all of us is uh, reporting an impaired practitioner. So one of our goals is to make sure that this person gets help because we have to think about what does it mean when someone is practicing uh, for, I give the example of an audiologist who's doing intraoperative monitoring with a chemical substance abuse problem. So that person is supposed to be watching and helping the surgeon see if there is, he's getting too close, he or she's getting too close to the facial nerve and may cause um, facial nerve paralysis. So um, is it different if the person's a hearing aid dispenser? We say, well, the risk isn't as great. Um, is it different or is it the same? If you are a practitioner who is not practicing as you should, um, so how do we report impaired practitioners? And of course, the self-disclosure requirement requires audiologists and SLPs to report themselves and take themselves out of practice uh, if they have a, a substance abuse problem. 
So the code of ethics is definitely not going to solve every problem. ASHA has issues and ethics statements that are a few pages long. They go into more depth with uh, examples of cases and they're updated regularly. And they can help a member really think through a problem. There are statements both on audiology assistance and conflicts of professional interest, for example, two of the topics we've talked about today. And of course, when in doubt, an individual can always contact ethics at asha.org. Well, that is a great, great place for us to end. You have given us so much really rich information and you've been a wonderful guest. So thank you so much for sharing your considerable knowledge and information with us. I know our listeners appreciate the information that you've shared about ethics in audiology practice because ethics is essential. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Davis McLeod. I hope All Things Ethics has provided information that will help you strengthen your practice and your understanding of our profession's code of ethics. We want as many of our colleagues as possible to know about All Things Ethics. So be sure to spread the word, write a review of the podcast, and subscribe to the All Things Ethics pod course. Thanks.